Megan. This is Alyssa. I'm Hannah. And you're listening to Midwest's Best. In this episode, we give a Midwestern take on the holiday season. As Alyssa tells the tale of her favorite shipwreck, Hannah shares an ancient recipe, and Megan asks if Santa Claus has a cousin. I'm slowly dying, but aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> that, that sample right there. <laughs> oh, great. So there this is go. fun. Listen, I want you to not judge me for this. I do have a stash of pixie sticks in my office. Ooh, and some Smarties. Of course you do. You You are like a goddamn elf, Hannah. (laughs) Except I'm not supposed to swear, remember? But goddamn isn't a bad swear. Well, it's the the episode. I'm talking about saints. (laughs) You can't just be dropping GDs as Hannah, like, snorts pixie sticks. All right. Uh, <laughs> so December episode, Woo. traditional generic holiday, except two of our topics are specific to Christmas. You got to stick with what you know. We know Christmas, so yeah. mm-hmm. I'm kicking it off uh, talking about one of my very favorite uh, shipwrecks from the Great Lakes. My favorite tragedy. <laughs> don't we all have a favorite shipwreck? <laughs> don't we all? A Great a Great Lakes shipwreck? A favorite? No? Just me? How is it not the Edmund Fitzgerald? Oh, uh, overdone. Let's talk about it. It's yeah, too mainstream exactly. of a shipwreck. <laughs> it is. And also, the Edmund Fitzgerald's on Lake Superior. I grew up on Lake Michigan, so I gotta stay true to the home lake. Okay. So I'm talking about the Christmas tree ship, or it's more proper ship named the Rouse Simmons. People know it as the Christmas tree ship. People that know shipwrecks of the Great Lakes, <laughs> I should, should clarify maybe. In the circles you run in, people know. People, they know. This is a shipwreck that took place at the turn of the 20th century off of the coast of Two Rivers, uh, Wisconsin, so on Lake Michigan. I'm gonna tell you the story, because I think it's a great story. It's got a little bit of whimsy around it. It's got a guy named Captain Santa. <laughs> you know, whimsical shipwrecks. Yeah, some whim- a whimsical... It's like the Little Mermaid, basically. Kind of, sure. Not at all. <laughs> so the Rouse Simmons. So it's named after the Simmons family, a wealthy family. They were backers that helped uh, finance some of the shipbuilding industry in the 1800s. They're a wealthy family out of Kenosha, Wisconsin. If you've ever heard of Simmons Mattress, with that at all. That family. So the Rouse Simmons was built in 1868, but this guy, Herman Schuneman, 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 Schuneman. Listeners, you can correct me. Post it in the comments on the blog or on social. On how how I mispronounce that. Herman Schuneman, Schuneman, Schuneman. Herman Schuneman. But the Rouse Simmons in 1893, when it was kind of near the end of its life, it was an old wooden schooner. And as the the 1800s were closing and giving way to the 1900s, they were switching over from like the the old wood style ships more to like the metal ships that we kind of are more familiar with now and steam powered. This is an older style ship still that he buys, and he liked to buy these kind of ships when they're towards the end of their life because they're leaky, they're cheap. And he's just going to use them to transport Christmas trees. So who cares if the cargo gets a little wet? The people on the ship? (laughs) No, they're not in the cargo with the trees. 
But if you're taking on water, the- I see how this story ends. <laughs> no, no, no. So, well, yeah, that is a little bit of it. That's later. So, no, but he would take... Okay. So these old wooden schooners, they would be a little leaky, but you'd have the lumber in them, and it didn't matter if the lumber got wet. It didn't hurt it. But okay. also wood, it's very buoyant. Think about it, like, wood floats, right? Aww. So it gave the ship an extra buoyancy. That's why they would use them for this. Shuneman, he would travel from Thompson, Michigan, to open the UP down towards Chicago every year. So he would go to the UP, load up with Christmas trees, and then sail down Lake Michigan to Chicago. He would uh, make port in Chicago, and when he would get there, he would take a Christmas tree fully decorated and hoist it up to the top of the ship. Yes. And then he also had... Throughout the entire mast and rigging, lights. Like, electric lights. Oh. Yeah. And in, like, early 1900s, that would be quite the thing to see. Yeah, and, like, there were other ships that were doing the same. (laughs) I mean, it would now, but... (laughs) (laughs) It would be cool to see, yeah. And people would go onto the ship to buy their tree and, you know, then take it home. But it was kind of, like, this cool sight to see. Like, people would wait for Shuneman to come in with his trees to just see this whole spectacle. He was also very charitable. He would give away a lot of his trees to, like, the poor or churches, which earned him the Captain Santa nickname. Aww. Yeah, so he's Captain Santa. Unfortunately for him, in 1912 was going to be his last run. Yeah, so this is where it kind of turns to, like, a dark, sad time. So he was doing his normal run from Thompson, Michigan to Chicago, and he's going to leave Thompson November 22nd. Now, there's a lot of bad omens associated with his departure. First of all, he's going to leave on a Friday. Not a good thing for maritime sailors. Like, it was a superstition that you don't leave on a Friday. Huh. Don't know why, but it was one of, you know, one of those (laughs) those old-timey superstitions. So he's going to leave on a Friday. He is said to have announced that it was going to be his last run. Like, he was going to retire after this. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. That's strike two, buddy. Strike two. Strike three. All the rats on board leave the ship before they set sail. Dude, that's like sailing 101. You don't get on that ship. Rats. I know nothing and I know that. Like, if it's so bad, the rats are like, something's bad here. We're out. Yeah! Also, some of their crew members, having seen all the rats leave, are freaked out now. They're like, we're leaving on a Friday. The rats have left. We're not going on this ship. Which left them with 13 mm-hmm. crew members. Now, they do pick up some lumberjacks <laughs> that want to go to Chicago. As one does. Yeah, yeah. That want to leave the UP for the winter and go down to Chicago. So they don't sail with 13 people. They'll sail 17 total, but only 13 of like the actual crew. And also, as they leave, they had a horseshoe hanging on the ship, which a lot of ships did at the time, for good luck. The horseshoe is supposed to be facing upward to keep the luck yeah. in. And the wind knocked it so it was down. So this like, is how they're so leaving. so much bad juju. I know. They're uh, making their way down, and when they're kind of off of kind of the Two Rivers area, because this is where the ship is going to eventually be found, they get caught up in some really bad storms. Lake Michigan can be a beast. I mean, yes, we all know the Edmund Fitzgerald, the gales in November on Lake Superior. Lake Michigan's just as bad. <laughs> and on the night of November 23rd, this is when the ship is going to go down. It gets caught up in some bad weather. The crew is going to try and take out an anchor to try and put that overboard to try and, like, hold them in. But unfortunately, they brought on that extra weight onto the deck. Like, that was the worst possible time for the ship to take on the extra weight. The anchor will get thrown up into the air and go over the front of the bow. Oh, dear. Kind of, like, snap (laughs) off part of the front of the ship, and the ship's just going to go nosediving now at this point. 
This is like a cartoon. It's like if Tom and Jerry were on a shipwreck. <laughs> so the ship goes down, and for weeks after that, Christmas trees continued to wash up on the shores of Lake Michigan. <laughs> That's so sad. Uh, and people were said to say that, you know, Captain Santa was making his final delivery. The story gets a little weirder now as we go, though, because, like, we knew the ship went down, but they never knew exactly where. This was in 1912 when the ship goes down, so they never had, like, the actual spot where it went down. You know, all all hands on deck were just assumed dead at that point. Okay. In 1923, a fisherman on Lake Michigan pulls in Schooneman, Captain Santa's wallet. Whoa. And it had been preserved with, like, some wax... It was one of the ways back then that they could, like, preserve a wallet. His ID and stuff was in there, so he knew it was Schooneman's. That's crazy. Yeah. 11 years? 11 years after, finds this wallet. And then it's not until the 1970s that Kent Bell Richard, a Milwaukee diver, actually finds the Christmas tree ship off of Two Rivers. And he goes down on his dive, and he finds Christmas trees still on the ship. And some of them are still green. Like, they still have the needles and they're still green because of where, how cold it is oh. down there. It's, like, preserved. That's bananas. Were there skeletons and caught amongst the tree <laughs> Not that I never found, so I don't know if, like, the bodies at some point washed up somewhere. Who knows, but it's also one of the, a sh- it's one of the ships that some sailors have said to see it as a ghost ship on Lake Michigan. Ooh. So it's, yeah, it's kind of a creepy <laughs> Christmas story. Does it only come out at Christmas time, or is it a ghost ship all the time? I think all the time. But there are, and there are still, like, some ships that kind of carry on this tradition, too. I think, like, the Coast Guard gets involved at times of, like, giving away trees to the poor, like, just like Captain Santa oh. did. Fun fact, in Chicago, where Captain Santa used to make his port, there was a local musical that someone wrote and put on, and I think they put it on every now and then down in Chicago. About the Christmas tree, <laughs> about the Christmas tree ship, and Herman Schooneman and the whole story. So, and they just take the ballad of the Edmund Fitzgerald <laughs> and change the words. It's like a thirteen-minute performance. <laughs> also, my personal professional connection to this you can actually go see real parts of this ship at discovery worlds the science and tech museum in milwaukee or at least they did for a long time they've remodeled a lot recently but they had porthole window and a Mm -hmm. few other things from the shipwreck on display that you could actually go see i've watched uh some lectures given by some of the divers that have worked on it before and I mean, they do talk about how cold it is yeah. doing dives in Lake Michigan, that it, it would be like going out, you know, in the winter when it's 10 degrees outside without anything on. At first I was like, okay, Alyssa, this is your favorite shipwreck, but the fact that you're like, I've got to speakers with my <laughs> divers on this, I'm like, all right, I'm in. I believe you now. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it's got everything. It's got... Death? It's got Christmas. The Bad Omens, Christmas, ghost ships. Sign me up. No. (laughs) Sign me up to die amongst the Christmas trees. (laughs) There's something about the visual of an old-timey wooden sailing ship coming in to the docks and then hoisting that tree up with the lights all rigged up through it that I just think it would be really cool to see. I'm not questioning that. You know in that Andy Williams song where he's like, it's the most wonderful time of the year? (laughs) He does say scary ghost stories, so maybe this is it. Maybe he was just really into the Christmas tree ship as well. Maybe. Who knows? Ralph Simmons didn't really fit in the song as well, so he just went scary, go- scary ghost stories. Gotcha. Gotcha. So that's, that's what that's, <laughs> that Ralph Simmons really stories. 
I already told you there's a musical about this, Megan. <laughs> <laughs> Very loose connection here. I'm going to try and transition. <laughs> what I'm talking about today also has to do with water. Nailed it! <laughs> I will take your Christmas death story and raise you jellyfish. No, that doesn't work Wait, either. Jelly like fish. Not jellyfish. Jellied fish. Jellied, well, jellied yeah. Either. I was going to say Schunemann was an immigrant. It sounds German, house. though. Yeah, he is. I only talk about Norwegians on this podcast. Well, the Midwest, <laughs> the Midwest has all sorts of immigrants. Yeah. Despite not actually having any Scandinavian ancestry, I have lived now in two places that are intensely Norwegian and then just been soaking in the general Scandinavian culture of the upper Midwest for most of my life. One of the things that I thought of when I was here to think of like, well, it's a Christmas tradition. We celebrated Christmas in my family kind of a-religiously, like... I didn't know Christmas and Easter were different than Halloween and 4th of July until I was older. <laughs> huh, they didn't mean anything religious to me. I told people I was raised a heathen. I'm not baptized. We never went to church. <laughs> I am perhaps culturally Christian <laughs> at most. So I don't really think about Christmas traditions. It's usually just like, yeah, we get presents and candy, but you also get candy <laughs> at Halloween. One of the things that pops up all across the upper Midwest every year, starting in about November, is the now traditional Ludafisk dinner. I feel like it's not that widespread. I, in fact, just Googled Ludafisk dinners and everything was like Minnesota, Wisconsin, Northern Minnesota, Southern Wisconsin, and that was kind of it. <laughs> so I'm going to give some more background on this just to explain yeah. what any of these words actually mean. So Ludafisk or Lutfisk is a Norwegian-Swedish dish. Lut means lie, like the caustic chemical, and fisk means fish caustic so. chemicals mixing with fish yeah yeah i mean what's not to love thus far? <laughs> what could go wrong <laughs> generally cod if that means anything to anyone uh and it actually goes back to the viking era lye can be made from ash so it's actually something that's been around for a long time <laughs> That somehow makes it sound less appetizing. <laughs> At first I was like, well, caustic, that could be, like, salty. But just ash. Full of ash. <laughs> ash and fish. Ash and you know, fish. Hey, we have this old fish, and I just happened to drop it into last night's fire. <laughs> and now it's covered in ash, but it's still good. We should, no, we should eat you're, it. You're so close <laughs> to the origin legend for Ludafus, you don't even know. <laughs> So, the first recorded instance in literature of Ludafisk was 1555 by Swedish writer Olaus Magnus in a description of northern people that just talks about how it's prepared, which is pretty much the same as it is now. It hasn't changed much in the past 500 years. I've seen it a few places, but my source today is Smithsonian Magazine. Nice. <laughs> Has a legend that there are some Viking fishermen that were hanging their fish up to dry as people did for, you know, thousands of years. But some neighboring Vikings came in, attacked, and just burned everything down. People left, a storm blew in that kind of doused the flames. But by then, there's all the fish, dried fish laying on the ground in ashy puddles. So then later, some starving Vikings came along and were like, I don't know, it's food, and ate it. <laughs> and we're like, good enough. Let's continue to eat this for the next 500 years. Yeah, I was going like, to say, and we're that's... never going to improve on the recipe. <laughs> ever. Yeah, that's like how people still prepare it. Attack your neighbor <laughs> eat their fish. Dance in the flames of their homes. <laughs> My fun fact for today is Andrew Zimmern, the guy who does Bizarre Foods, called it one of the worst foods in the world. 
This guy eats, like, oh. eyeballs and intestines and <laughs> testicles and all sorts of stuff. And Ludif is one of his top most sure. hated foods. And the nice thing is, like yeah. I said, it is a caustic chemical. So basically, you dry the fish, it gets soaked in lye that kind of reconstitutes it in lye water. But you can't eat lye. So you have to do a progressive series of rinses in fresh water to get all the lye out so it doesn't, like, hurt you when you eat it. Here's uh, the steps to prepare this food. We're going to take the food... We're going to make it inedible, and it could kill you. Yeah, like, actually poisonous. And then we're going to, like, wash some of that off, and then we're going to do it again, and then we're going to wash a bit more off, and we're going to do it again. Come on. Yeah. I don't really see how this one became a tradition, guys. Well, <laughs> as with a lot of immigrant traditions, because people are poor, if you look Aww. up... <laughs> now I feel like a jerk. <laughs> so it's a good way to preserve fish over, like, a long winter, or to, you know, be able to get a lot of it and hang on to it for a while. So is salt. <laughs> salt is expensive though salt oh, used to be like point. a super big commodity that's um, fair all right so from the same smithsonian article there is something that kind of branches our idea of what we use lye for they say yes lye the industrial chemical used to unclog drains and dispose of murder victims Incident <laughs> it's safe to eat incidentally <laughs> it's the same chemical that gives pretzels their deep shiny brown cures fresh olives for eating and what makes bagels gleam these foods just don't advertise this fact like Ludafist does. So actually, we eat lye-treated food all the time, apparently, and it's just, you don't know. You don't realize that's huh. what does it. So I guess that, like... Learn something new every day. Well, yeah. you know, we're already eating red dye 40, I guess. <laughs> What's fine. a little bit of lye? <laughs> What's a little lye? Yeah. <laughs> Between drying it, reconstituting it in caustic materials, and then essentially rinsing and boiling it repeatedly, it breaks down the protein bonds in the muscle. So you don't just get, like, fish jerky, you don't just get fish meat, it kind of turns it into a semi-translucent, gelatinous oh. fish object. I mean, when you said fish jerky, I was like, gross, and then it got worse <laughs> when you said gelatinous fish object. I encourage oh. everyone to Google Ludafisk and just take a look at the pictures. I feel like my Google safe search is gonna turn on. <laughs> Like, you don't want to see this. And also, to be traditional, you don't really put anything on it. You get either butter or white sauce, like a bechamel. And then you just kind of <laughs> shovel it in. And some of them even says, yeah, it's kind of fishy tasting with an aftertaste of ash. And then it's just coated in butter. Yes. It's like, you know what would make this gelatinous fish covered in ash better? <laughs> a bechamel. Just... <laughs> There are, at Ludafus dinners, and I saw this, again, across multiple places, so I know it's just one or two instances, they'll just have crocks of melted butter at the table. You don't get a butter pat with your meal. There's a ceramic crock at each table because you douse everything in butter or white sauce. Have you been to one? I was to say, like, I've been to fish fries with just cod yeah. that do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, but the butter is not the issue, Hannah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it sounds to me... Like, people are just trying to mask the lutefisk with melted butter, but really, like, they just want to drink the butter straight. Like, that would be better than lutefisk. <laughs> and that's why this is a tradition in Wisconsin and Minnesota. <laughs> I did have a section of my notes that just says, why? Why did you do this? <laughs> did so, you find out why? <laughs> there's more lutefisk consumed in the U.S. than in Scandinavia. 
most Scandinavians, they might have it, but it's not such a thing like it is here. Yeah, they're like, we gave that up a long time ago, guys. (laughs) We're past that now. We're not Vikings, guys. The U.S. has about as many people of, like, clearly identified Norwegian descent as there are actual Norwegians. That makes sense. And so, if you think about that, like, immigration and holding on to tradition and holding on to ethnic identity after you've arrived somewhere new... That was a big part of it, is that people kept eating it, and it was a connection to kind of the homeland. And that's also part of why, if you ever see Ludafist dinner listings, they're almost always at a Lutheran church. Because most Norwegians were Protestant, Aww. especially Lutheran, and then they also were the ones eating Ludafist, so you have church Ludafist dinners um, that you get to go to. Huh. There is a really great blog from Amy Thielen. It'll be up on our sources cited page eventually in the blog. She said, Ludafisk eating is more cultural reenactment than anything else. And I think that sums it up really nicely. It's just that people don't necessarily enjoy it, but they'll yeah. not because of the taste and like the delight in eating fish jelly, but in like of keeping that connection to family tradition and cultural tradition, they're honoring their heritage. I feel like there's a way that they could keep that without consuming the fish. Uh, there are always non-fish options at every Ludafus dinner. The ones around here seem to have ham. The ones in Madison I always saw had, like, Swedish meatballs. Okay. My stepdad's family, Gilbertson's, <laughs> so again, Norwegian, used to have Ludafisk for holidays up through his lifetime, but eventually they re- replaced it with other, like, Scandinavian-ish fish sure. foods that were a little more palatable. So one was oyster stew, but he also loves to buy pickled herring, which to me is still gross mm-hmm. like it's, i used to have to package like that when I, dog food yeah when i worked in the deli we used to have to package that and it was nasty and then to go with the lutefisk or ham or whatever you decide to eat there's other traditional blonde foods but they're called blonde but it's spelled bland because it's the scandinavian <laughs> pronunciation so blonde is in light colored but also bland isn't yeah uh so you get like mashed potatoes or mashed rutabaga, which I've actually never had. So Coleslaw. delicious. Also delicious with a crock of butter, I'm just saying. No, that's what it is. Yeah, it's all butter. And then yeah. lefsa, which sure. for people who don't know, lefsa is like a potato tortilla. So again, very light colored and kind of bland, which you also coat in butter and then roll it up and you eat. You made me some and it was so good. There's a big debate in the community. I don't know how to define what kind of community it is, but you can either have lefsa with just butter or lefso with butter and brown sugar sprinkled on it. And some people have very strong opinions either way about which is the correct way to eat it. I think we put brown sugar on it when we had it, so I would be solidly in that camp. Yeah, it's delicious. And there's also a place called Norski Nook, a Norwegian restaurant, good. which is known for their lefso wraps, where it's lefso wrapped around mashed potatoes and either meatballs, pork, or... I forget what else. Um, and then covered in gravy. Our friend of the podcast, Liz, she is uh, familiar with the Norsky Nook and is a fan. Anyone who uh, goes there is. Yeah, I was going to say, we have many friends of the podcast yeah. that are yeah. fans of Norsky Nook. I have a Norsky Nook Titan downstairs <laughs> that I like paid for the honor of keeping. To keep that? If anyone's yeah. ever in Osseo, Wisconsin, driving along... I-94, stop by the Norski Nook and get a left seraph and some pie. Pie is so good. But that kind of transitions into the last part of a good Ludafus dinner, which is the dessert. Some of them are just traditional pies. Some of them are traditional Scandinavian cookies. So you get rosettes and Linzer cookies and Krumkaka and Sandbockel. You also get German spritz cookies, Italian pizzelles. Some places might even have kolaches, which are Eastern European little like sweet 
bread dumplings, kind of. Sounds like they really step up the game at the end here. That's when you, you just... got a lot of flavors to get out of your mouth. <laughs> you need it's... something sweet. Here's all the yeah, deliciousness they're... that you've actually come here for. <laughs> Again, I feel like they could skip the fish part and just have the delicious part. But then you don't get the <laughs> community. You can go to a lot of grocery stores in the Midwest and just buy these Scandinavian desserts that I feel like, again, that everyone sort of knows. But a lot of these dinners will get over a thousand people. And you can go online and just search Ludafist dinners near me and get a list. And people will go every weekend to a different Ludafist dinner. The earliest evidence is the early 1900s, which is really when you kind of hit first and second generation immigrants, especially most Scandinavian immigrants came in the late 1800s. So these are people trying to kind of cement their identities. And most of the Ludafisk in the US comes from Minnesota. And I actually Ooh. found this brand in my local grocery store this week. Olson Fish Company in Minneapolis, Minnesota is the only high volume Ludafisk processor in the United States. They also make pickled herring. Yep, that's where we used to get the pickled herring for the deli, Olson's. <laughs> They also apparently at one point, and I love this, tried to make a Ludafisk TV dinner. Oh man. <laughs> it did not go well. Luck, and they discontinued it. To end it, I want to share something that apparently is common, though I have not heard this, to find on like t-shirts and other things at Scandinavian gift shops in the Midwest. Try Ludafisk at your own Luderisk. Nice. So if we can't find that other places, <laughs> we're creating a gift shop for it. Just for that. It's its own gift shop. It's just a closet with one t-shirt hanging in it. You know, we've had a lot of fun today at the expense of Ludafisk, but I'm sure there are people who love it and just love the stories and tradition that come with it. So Hannah, not to like poop on your tradition that you put a lot of time into researching. Shout out to, uh, to those that are brave enough, more brave than I, to try the Ludafisk. Alyssa's not willing to take the Ludafisk. I've eaten a lot of Scandinavian foods, but I've never gone as far as to eat Ludafisk. That just sounds ludicrous. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for expanding upon that. I knew there's somewhere else we could go from Ludafisk. That's what I'm here for. So Hannah talked about a not very well-known traditional meal, and Alyssa kind of talked about a somewhat well-known <laughs> ghost story. So I'm going to take the easiest thing I could have researched, and I'm going to talk about the tradition of St. Nick's Day. And what I found just kind of in my research, I feel like a lot of people grew up with this in the Midwest. I, of course, have a ridiculous story because <laughs> I this was something that was a big part of my childhood, and my parents were very, very good about it. And my brother and I would put out our shoes on December 6th, and sometime during the night, St. Nick would come. And he would leave candy or a little toy. One year, while we were gone to church, St. Nick came. Unbeknownst to us, my mom snuck out of church at communion. My dad <laughs> brought us home. And she had put the little toys in our shoes. You mean she had allowed took... St. Nick to put the little toys? Yes, yes. She, she made sure St. <laughs> Nick knew where our shoes okay. were. And then was hiding outside because we got home early. And she didn't want us to see her helping, air quote, St. Nick. Well, she thought Megan and Kyle will run inside and they will play with their toys. I'll be able to sneak in the back door. Well, she goes around to the back door. The back door is locked. Then she goes back to the front door. Well, we've gone inside. We've locked the front door. So we locked my mom out in the snow. And it took my dad nearly a half hour to figure out what happened. <laughs> As my brother and I were just like with playing with our Power Rangers at the window, my mom was like, 
I was looking in the living room window and you and your brother and your father were all sitting around the Christmas tree playing with your new toys. And it was like the saddest moment of it's, my life. It's just like she thought, like you and your brother would run and get distracted and play with your toys, which you did. Yes. She thought she'd just sneak in, but it was not Foiled again. plan. Uh. <laughs> so eventually he went into the kitchen to cook dinner and unlocked the door for her. <laughs> Those of you who aren't familiar with Saint Nick are probably still hung up on the whole shoe thing. And I get it. It's weird. But we're going to backtrack. We'll get into that in a minute. The tradition of St. Nick, actually, it does come from Christian tradition. In the third century, in what is now Turkey, there was this man. The history is not quite clear on what his full name was. So they just call him Nicholas of Myra. He was born into a wealthy family, but his parents passed away when he was still pretty young. And instead of taking his riches and just kind of living out his life, he dedicated himself to taking care of the less fortunate and the children in his community. This is during the rule of Emperor Constantine, so like Christianity was everywhere. And this guy was so well beloved and so respected in his community for doing all this charity work that they made him a bishop without him being a priest first. <laughs> like they skipped some very important steps. It's like you're in. But Constantine was like, yeah, Constantine was like, you seem cool. And then they had all these like, bishop meetings and he would slap other bishops who didn't agree with him. So Constantine <laughs> was like, yeah, you're awesome. Nicholas builds up this, this reputation. He's well beloved by his community. He somehow gets taxes lowered when like all of Rome was just taxing the rest of the world. He continues to do his charity work. He helps the community during a time of famine. But eventually he does pass away. What? And the community, yes, <laughs> I know, you kind of thought this dead. was going to be like, and then he, I don't know, I don't know how he was going to get out of debt, but the community was very much active in keeping his memory alive, and it seemed that somebody was still keeping his tradition of taking care of the less fortunate, because every year on December 6th, which is the anniversary of his death, they would have these little parties, but these little miracles would happen. The most famous is a man, a man had three daughters, but he was very, very poor and he couldn't afford a dowry for them to get married. So option B, obviously, was sell them into slavery. I mean, it's not uncommon for the time. I checked multiple sources, (laughs) but I was like, really? They couldn't be washmaids or something? Like, we had to jump right to slavery? So, what's a dad to do, you know? You gotta... You can't afford to keep them around. Yeah, three? That's a lot. And, like, and like, convents weren't, like, a huge thing yet, so, you know. <laughs> That's true. That's true. They couldn't just ship them off to a nunnery. <laughs> anyway, this guy was gonna have to sell his daughters into slavery. But, on St. Nick's Eve... They left the window open, and someone threw in three bags of gold, (laughs) and one landed in each of the daughter's shoes or stockings. It depends on where you're getting the story from. And this is an ancient story that has survived a long time. It just depends what culture is telling it, whether you had the Christmas stocking or your shoes out. Or you just got hit in the face with a bag of gold. (laughs) I mean, if someone was giving me gold, maybe I'd, like, take one for the tip (laughs) and just get smacked in the face. I mean, if I'm gonna get hit in the face with something, like, make it a bag (laughs) of gold, please. (laughs) Which one of you said uh, convents? Because this is a tradition that does get passed down through convents for... (laughs) Alyssa's raising her hand, like, (laughs) I know. This is a story that was so popular. It lasted for centuries. And there's stories from like the 10th century where this gets to France 
and a group of nuns really takes it on and they go through all the orphanages in Paris and the surrounding townships and leave gifts in all the shoes of all the orphans. So it spreads throughout Western Europe and becomes super popular, especially in Germany. And as we've talked about, Germany was a big part of settling the Midwest. It's the late 1800s, early 1900s. We have German immigrants coming into the Midwest. These people love to party. They have a lot of fun <laughs> traditions. So they're moving into these communities, be it Norwegian, Irish, whatever the case may be. And they start sharing the story of St. Nicholas. They have the shoe thing, mm -hmm. <laughs> but they also have songs and short stories and poems. Now, this is where the story of St. Nicholas kind of starts to evolve because one of the more famous poems was called A Visit from St. Nick, which was later adapted to Twas the Night Before Christmas, oh. which is one of the earliest depictions of Santa Claus in American culture. Or at least Santa as we know him yeah. as kind of like the jolly elf guy. Right. Yeah. So, so and, Santa oh, is St. Nick. Well, now if you ask the church, they're going to say no. <laughs> they are two very separate entities. But we're checking some boxes. You've got a kindly old guy who takes care of children, does it all in one night in December. There's a lot of overlap. Yeah. And it certainly doesn't help that in the original German translation of A Visit from St. Nick, St. Nick is pronounced Sankt Niklaus. Oh, which, yeah. to someone who doesn't speak German, you're going to be like, Santa Claus, gotcha. <laughs> I'm going to go write my poem and become super famous, and you guys can just suck it. <laughs> Maybe they didn't say suck it. You know, as one does for the, the holiday spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm going to steal your traditional story and make a lot of money off of it through the New Yorker or wherever it was first published. I don't have those notes. That's <laughs> um, super like the commercialization of Christmas. So that, that checks out. Yeah. And it's really early 1900s is when that, that idea of the kind of Coca-Cola Santa Claus really starts to take off. It's very much attributed to early stories of St. Nick. Oh, fun fact, since everybody <laughs> else had fun facts this time around. They actually know where St. Nicholas is buried, Ooh. and there was a church built around it. And in the 1950s, they were doing extensive renovations, and they had to exhume the body. Ooh, I love a good... So, yeah, a good now body. I'm into yeah. my, like, ghost story <laughs> version. They exhume this body, and they're like, well, we already have it up. Let's measure all his bones. So, so for some reason, these scientists record very specific measurements of the bones. And over 50 years later... Another group of scientists finds the information and decides to do a facial reconstruction. You know, I'm sure rosy cheeks and twinkling eyes, that's in your bones, right? Because <laughs> this facial reconstruction looks very much like our modern day idea of Santa Claus. Was he white? Because if the original St. Nick was Turkish, well, he probably wouldn't be like European. He's, he's like a... <sighs> looks Turkish. Okay. The beard is more gray than white, but the fact that he's got very robust yeah. <laughs> rosy cheeks, I'm like, that was maybe some some influence. And there's a distinct twinkle to that. <laughs> I'll post the picture to the blog because I was like, that was probably influenced a little bit. I love a good facial reconstruction. Who doesn't? <laughs> so, did you guys have St. Nick growing up? Because I have found that it, it is much more of a Midwest thing because it started with these German traditions even though it was really popular in France and other areas. Yeah, we did in my house, and my mom said even, like, for her growing up, she had always had it, too, and my dad, and but, like, for my mom especially, mm -hmm. 
she talked about how her mom would still put together like a saint nick stocking for her even kind of into her marriage like my mom was married living with my dad (laughs) my my grandma would like put a stocking together and be like here's your saint nick stocking yeah that's really sweet but it was saint nick not grandma right right. it was saint nick (laughs) remember we're keeping this alive for the kids (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. Grandma would talk to St. Nick and be like, even though my, my daughter's full grown, can we yeah. still get her a stocking? She still believes. She still believes. <laughs> oh, and there was there was a part of the tradition that was, if you were a naughty child, you didn't get candy, you would get coal. Sure. So that obviously, again, that kind translates. of melded into our idea of Santa My brother Claus. definitely got coal in his stocking a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> my, my mom thought it was hilarious. Yeah. I like that your mom laughed at your brother's expense with you. <laughs> was no secret he was naughty in a lot of cultures it later became this is santa checking in and if you get candy you're on the good list if you're getting coal you've got like three weeks to get your stuff together (laughs) it was always explained to us as uh saint nick was like santa's cousin or something knowing like okay it's not santa no it's saint nick Okay, so they're different, yeah. but, like, how? The argument that they are separate is pretty yeah. tenuous. You know, I was, like, three, so I was like, that checks out. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't a master of the scientific method yet. You were like, sure, I have cousins. Why couldn't Santa have a cousin? Makes sense to me. <laughs> I did kind of use the scientific method to confirm my belief that Santa Claus wasn't real. I would check your methods had, again, like... Hannah, because he's definitely real. <laughs> I had set terms in my Christmas letter. My brother and I both got presents from Mrs. Claus as well Ooh. as Santa Claus. So I think really I specifically feminism. asked for something from like one of them and then other stuff from the other. My mom didn't remember that (laughs) so that was my proof that like all right this is just my mom doing it i had set test parameters and the results didn't match (laughs) but how do you know how do you know that mr and mrs claus didn't talk to one another maybe they're just forgetful yeah they just like talk to one another and they're like let's make one giant shopping list and go shopping together because that's what couples do (laughs) wait they don't go shopping (laughs) you have a very (laughs) no now the elves are really subjected you know what i mean <laughs> They're the daughters that got sold into slavery because St. Nick didn't drop off the gold. It's all connected. Wait, how did we get back to slavery? Like, this is two episodes in a row that we've talked about slavery. <laughs> Specifically child slavery. You really, like, want to make a PSA about, like, slavery and... Its- Mine was relevant to my bad. story, though. <laughs> Do you guys want me to talk about the Christmas pickle, too? Or I think yeah. we need to talk Are about we- the pickle. The pickle in the room, if you will. <laughs> okay, so this one will be kind of short because the research... Uh, okay, let me back up. <laughs> so this is another tradition that I learned about from my husband's family. When we were first dating, it was our first Christmas together, I went over to his parents' house. and We had a lovely meal. We're watching a movie with the whole family by the Christmas tree. And he leans over and he goes, Hey, babe, you want to try and find the Christmas pickle? <laughs> I just kind of, I gave him this look that was like, your grandma is in the room. (laughs) No Christmas pickles will be found this night. He's like, no. And his mom explained to me that the tradition of the Christmas pickle is, it's supposedly a German tradition, but we'll talk about that in a minute. After you're done decorating the tree, on Christmas Eve, the parents take a pickle ornament and they hide it somewhere in the tree. And the first child to find it 
not only has good luck in the coming year, but they also get a special little gift like candy or a toy or something. Kevin's parents still do it now, even though all the kids are grown. And so they always do the Christmas pickle. I wanted to learn a little bit more about this. And I tried to research and tried to research and I couldn't find anything about the Christmas pickle. And finally, I came across this New York Times article that basically debunked the pickle. Like, this is a very specific to the American Middle West idea. And they did a poll of people in Germany and out of over 2,000 people they asked, 91% had never heard of a Christmas pickle. <laughs> so they've got no idea where this came but from. But wait, what about like the other 9% that had? They talked to a man whose name escapes me, but I will post the article, who is an ornament maker ah. in Germany. And his he, that's like what he specializes in. Because he's like, yeah, I lived in America for a couple years and there were all these people who talked about the Christmas pickle. So I just started making real German Christmas sure. pickles. Capitalize on that. <laughs> and his best guess was, like we were talking about um, in the late 1800s, there was this big immigration period of immigration. And there was a section of Germany that was known for raising cucumbers. Their whole lives revolved around cucumbers in this specific region of Germany. And the story was they were so poor, that's what they would even decorate their Christmas trees with. So there's a thought that maybe as that specific region of Germany immigrated to America, that tradition came with it, but there's really not a lot of evidence for it. It's just kind of a couple people's best guess. I told my husband all of this, and he was just distraught. <laughs> so hopefully the rest of his family doesn't listen to this episode, because I don't want to ruin the Christmas pickle Man, for them. are we just like ruining Christmas with this episode? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think we accidentally ruined Christmas. We got dead sailors. <laughs> we got disgusting fish. <laughs> and we've got lies. Just pickled, pickled lies. <laughs> Whether December means ghost stories, weird foods, or strange family traditions, we here at Midwest's best hope that the end of 2018 finds you well. And check back at the end of the month for our first ever Outtakes episode. Thank you so much for joining us as we've created and grown this podcast over the past year. We would also like to thank Cola, an artist from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, for releasing music under Creative Commons licensing. You've heard their song, Till At Last, in our intro and right now. This podcast is also released under Creative Commons. Share and share alike. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Midwest's Best Show, as well as at midwestsbestshow.wordpress.com. Episodes can be downloaded pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. Can't you blow.